What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. to the best of the 80s in 2021. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look back at three 80s related movies that came out during 2021. Then I want to look at some of the top podcasts and topics are covered through the year that I found the most interesting. Hopefully you did too. Then we're going to finish with a bunch of the podcast stats courtesy of Spotify Rap to give you an idea where everyone's listening from and who you all are and stuff like that. You've got a lot of data, so it'll be interesting to look at. Okay, let's get right to it. So the first movie I want to look at is Dune. Even though Dune is a story from 1965, it has a lot of connections to the 1980s. Talks of a movie have been around almost since the book came out. None were more famous than Jodorowsky's Dune. This was going to be the science fiction movie to end all science fiction movies. It was to be created by Alejandro Jodorowsky in the mid-70s and star people like Orson Welles and Mick Jagger. Pink Floyd was going to do the soundtrack. It obviously never happened, but the 2013 documentary called Jodorowsky's Dune is a great look at what could have been. This is what would have been Star Wars before Star Wars. But the George Lucas classics are nothing much more than a retelling of the Dune story. The imagery, the hero's journey theme of Luke Skywalker, planetary travel, even the concept of the Force all come from Dune. Even to just sell the idea of his space movie to studios, George Lucas commissioned artist Ralph McQuarrie to create the image of it. And Lucas instructed him to take much of the imagery from Dune to create this world in storyboards and stuff. And it's all straight from Dune. If it wasn't for Dune, there wouldn't be a Star Wars. And George Lucas beat everyone to the punch with his version of it. Then, in 1984, we got a movie version of Dune. I'm sure you've seen the thing and you may love it, but the response wasn't exactly the greatest. To a generation that had now been exposed to Star Wars, anything similar seemed too derivative. It was almost like Dune was copying Star Wars even though it was the other way around. Those who had read the 1965 book have always known otherwise. There were a lot of issues with the 1984 movie with editing. It came in at over four hours long before even the special effects were put in. The special effects, you know, maybe not holding up as much as others, and it just couldn't compare to the revolutionary Star Wars films. So Dune has had a pretty tumultuous road over its history, but that brings us to 2021 and the masterful version created by Denis Villanovo. 
If you are a big film fan, you know that he created other epic movies like Arrival and the truly amazing Blade Runner 2049. I don't know if you saw Dune in theaters, but it's astonishing. Every famous actor you've ever heard of seems to be in this thing. The musical score by Hans Zimmer is breathtaking, and the visuals, especially seen on the IMAX screen, are incredible. Not surprisingly, as many people would predict, this film wasn't a massive hit. But I think many weren't necessarily expecting it to be. It's also the first half of the story, and there is now been greenlit a sequel for it. So people going in fresh might not exactly know what's going on. And the movie's, you know, also sold with Zendaya a lot, and she doesn't appear in it that much. She's obviously still in it. So the thing is, Dune, as iconic as it is, is still a pretty niche topic, even with all that star power in it. I feel Dune will always have a connection to the 1980s. Between the Star Wars movies and the 1984 version, it seems to have adopted the 80s as its home more than the 1960s where it came from. So the next movie we're going to look at, Ghostbusters Afterlife. And spoilers ahead, just in case you haven't seen it yet. It's kind of crazy that just a few years ago, we already had a new Ghostbusters movie. This didn't necessarily come off as doing justice to the originals. When I heard there was going to be yet again another Ghostbusters movie, I was somewhat hesitant until I found out Jason Reitman was involved. Jason Reitman is the son of original Ghostbusters director Ivan Reitman. Knowing he was attached to this new movie meant we would get something consistent with the original and one that would honor its legacy. Also, knowing Paul Rudd was involved made this sit easier with me personally. There's not much more we need to say about the iconic Ghostbusters movie. Um, It's a defining part of the 1980s. Even though the sequel doesn't measure up to the original, it's still a great part of the franchise. So what would Ghostbusters Afterlife bring us? Would it be a rehash? Would it be a sequel, a combination of both? Um, Will it be something still original? Basically all of those things. It pays perfect tribute to the first film while continuing to move the story forward. To me, Ghostbusters Afterlife was like a love letter to Harold Ramis, and you can feel his touch all over this movie. Is it perfect? No, it's not. But it personally made me really happy, and I think it was exactly what it needed to be. So, spoiler alert here, last warning. I have to say the appearances of the original three Ghostbusters at the end didn't totally work for me. I I discussed this with many people, including talking to Nick over at Patreon, about how it didn't totally work. You could see it coming, and that doesn't make it bad, but I thought the movie stood on its own without that. It's almost like it disrupted everything that had done up to that point. But again, I can obviously see why that was included. And then honestly, to see the ghost version of Spengler back alongside them was actually really moving. I also think Ghostbusters Afterlife had some of the better post-credit scenes in a movie in a long time. I honestly think they could have been the real ending to the movie instead of a post-credit scene because a lot of people miss it. I think, you know, Marvel movies have trained us now how to watch a film and I'm astonished when anyone just gets up and leaves after the final scene of a Marvel movie before the credits. I, I cannot believe anyone would think to go unless they'd somehow already seen these things. The final post credit scene in Ghostbusters Afterlife in the Firehouse does open up the possibility for more of a Ghostbusters universe. 
I could easily see this franchise evolving into like a streaming series where there's different stories from around the world or different points in history of ghost-related stuff that are connected with the Ghostbusters. There's sort of an infinite, infinite amount of possibilities here. There are many directions they can now go with Ghostbusters, and I think it's exciting and something to look forward to. The last movie I want to cover is 8-Bit Christmas, and this was a surprising 1980s-related entry for 2021. I wasn't sure what to make of it based on the trailers, but it ended up being better than I thought. I don't know if this was something that was just going to try and stuff nostalgia down our throats. These type of projects can turn too much into a Memba when scenario instead of creating something original that can stand on its own. 8-Bit Christmas is the story of a bunch of kids trying to get their hands on a new NES during Christmas of an unspecified year of the 80s. It stars Neil Patrick Harris telling the story to his daughter. And the movie feels like a mashup of The Princess Bride and A Christmas Story. There's also a bit of a footloose feel to it when the community bans video games. So there is plenty of 80s references and imagery to keep you happy. What made this movie stand out to me is the surprising amount of heart to it. I could kind of see where it was going, but still found myself pretty moved by the end of it. I think this is what may make this movie last. I'm not sure how many people actually saw it, but I can see it popping up again for future holiday seasons. It's hard to tell if a movie will catch on, and many Christmas classics didn't become that way until years after their release. Hopefully, 8-Bit Christmas doesn't get lost to time. It's not the all-time greatest Christmas movie at all, but you never know what a movie will evolve into. If you haven't seen it, I'm pretty sure you'll really like it. So I want to cover a few of the podcast topics I did over 2021 that I found most interesting. Hopefully you did too. The first one is how Jaws changed the movie industry forever. And it's pretty easy to dismiss a movie like Jaws. We've all seen it. We all It's, it's almost like cliche with the moments in the movie, the imagery, the music, everything like that. But when was the last time you really watched it and appreciated it for what it is. And like I said, it's a commonplace movie. It's part of the pulp culture, like zeitgeist. But if it wasn't for Jaws, movies as we know it may not be at the level they are. It gave rise to the blockbuster. It helped create the summer movie season. It changed how studios approach movies. And it gave us Steven Spielberg. And he let us uh, see his, you know, amazing um imagery and storytelling and everything through all these classics. What's most interesting is this basically all happened by accident. The original plan with the movie was to feature a lot more shark, but the mechanics of putting this all together became a nightmare. Not to mention that the shark just didn't look that realistic. And, you know, there's that long running joke and perfectly referenced in Back to the Future to, you know, the, the shark still looks fake. So because of this, the entire direction of the movie needed to be changed. And this is what changed the trajectory of movies and Spielberg's career forever. So now they had to limit the appearance of the shark on screen. They were going for this full on shark attack, sharknado movie kind of almost. And now they needed to pull it all back almost hide this thing, and they needed to create a more tense and ominous tone for the film. This was ultimately the success of Jaws. It was the perceived terror that made it so intense and frightening. And like I said, if the movie had gone the way they had planned, it would have been, yeah, like the Piranha 3D movie. It would have been a shark slasher movie. It would have been 
a shark horror movie set in the water, you know, ultimately not taken seriously, but whatever, you know, instead we get this piece of filmmaking genius. The impending fear is what kept everyone on the edge of their seats. Add to this the legendary score by John Williams, and you now had a movie that was terrifying audiences. People were genuinely afraid to go swimming again after seeing Jaws. The idea with the score was to elicit impending danger, and this is usually scarier than the actual danger. Spielberg would recapture this tone perfectly in Jurassic Park with the ripples in the water and, you know, sort of training the audience how to watch the movie. And... Spielberg says, like, again, with just this score, the movie would have only been half as successful. So what this did was change movies forever, because first of all, they dumped it in the summertime, which was sort of like the barren landscape for movies, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, more successful movies would come out during Christmas or, or, or the new year or whatever. And summer was seen as a dead zone. But this movie was such a hit, they realized people were going back to see it multiple times. And kids off of school for the summer, like high school and college students, were going back multiple times. It seems obvious now, but this didn't really click in at the time. And it gave rise to what we now call the blockbuster. And, you know, that would be sort of further cemented with Star Wars a few years later. But, you know, we get the term blockbuster because the lines were going down the block and crossing over to other blocks. Like they were busting up the blocks. And this leads nicely into the next topic I covered. And that was, what was the best summer for movies in the 80s? So because of Jaws and then, you know, Star Wars, summer movies were now a thing. And this is where you'd make the big bucks. And this is when you would release the big movies of the year uh, and the popcorn movies and all that sort of thing. So I went through, see these episodes you can go back and listen to if you want to check them out and learn more. So here's the way I rank them and a surprising amount of great movies that came out in the summer months, which I have going from the Memorial Day weekend to the end of August, give or take a bit. Usually most of the big movies are out by the start of August, but that's that was sort of my barometer for um, movies to be counted in this. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. At number 10, I had the summer of 1983, and we got movies like Return of the Jedi, Trading Places, Superman 3, National, National Lampoon's Vacation, and, you know, this was all about Return of the Jedi. It was, that was the summer of 83, and you can see with some of these earlier years, there wasn't as many offerings, but a few of them had some big releases. At number 9, I had the summer of 1981. 
And this was all about Indiana Jones. This was Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. We also had the Evil Dead, Porky's, Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. Number eight, I had the summer of 1988. And this could be called the summer of sequels. There's a lot. We've got Young Guns, Crocodile Dundee 2, Rambo 3, Big, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Coming to America, Short Circuit 2, Cocktail, Die Hard, A Fish Called Wanda, Big Top Pee Wee, Caddyshack 2, and Mac and Me. So a lot of crazy good movies in this. And it was, you know, capitalizing on movies that had been a big hit a few years ago. And now they could put out the sequel for it finally, because it took a little longer to make movies in those days. So to me, the big standouts there were Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Die Hard. And it was a summer that really had something for everyone. Number seven, I had the summer of 1985. This is like an adventure summer. We've got A View to a Kill, Fletch, Back to the Future, The Goonies, Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome, National Lampoon's European Vacation, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Fall That Bird, Weird Science, and Teen Wolf. So this was just a straight-up fun and adventure summer. That seemed to be the theme going. Next, at number six, the summer of 1980. And this is some of the most influential movies ever came out in this summer. Also came out within a week or two of each other. So Caddyshack, Friday the 13th, Airplane, The Empire Strikes Back, The Shining, and Mad Max. You know, genre-defining movies, um, you know, all in that same summer. Number five, I had the summer of 1987. This one I called the summer of fun. So you had Beverly Hills Cop 2, Ernest Goes to Camp, Harry and the Hendersons, Predator, Spaceballs, Full Metal Jacket, Revenge of the Nerds 2, Robocop, Summer School, La Bamba, Superman 5, The Lost Boys, Masters of the Universe, Back to the Beach, Who's That Girl, and Dirty Dancing. An absolutely stacked summer. Number four, I had the summer of 1982. And these are straight up epic movies that all came out this summer. So we've got Rocky Three, Poltergeist, E.T., Blade Runner, The Thing, Tron, and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Again, all epic movies in, in their specific categories. Number three, the summer of 1986. Possibly the most consistent summer of the 1980s. So you've got Aliens, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Top Gun, Stand By Me, The Fly, Labyrinth, Flight of the Navigator, Howard the Duck, and Transformers, the movie. I had forgotten how good this summer really was. Number two, the summer of 1989. And this is the true blockbuster summer and could be potentially number one. I'll explain this in a sec. So in the summer of 1989, we had Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Dead Poet Society, No Holds Barred, Batman, Ghostbusters 2, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Weekend at Bernie's, The Karate Kid Part 3, License to Kill, When Harry Met Sally, UHF, Turner and Hooch, Parenthood, and Uncle Buck. So just incredible. So, But I had it number one, the summer of 1984. And to me, this was the summer of the instant classic. We've got... Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, Ghostbusters, Gremlins, The Karate Kid, The Muppets Take Manhattan, Revenge of the Nerds, and Purple Rain. So maybe not as many movies as 1989, but some, like, like I said, instant classics. 
The next topic I covered over the year, which was one of my favorites and, and extremely interesting, is the story of the DeLorean, the crazy story of the most iconic car ever. And this thing is nuts when you get deep into it. And it's as much the story of its creator, John DeLorean, in case you didn't know it was named after a real guy who was trying to make a sports car for the masses, kind of like Elon Musk did with the Tesla Roadster. And then he wanted DeLoreans to be everywhere. He wanted DeLorean minivans. He wanted DeLorean school buses and like just to take over. And of course, you know, it had these unique traits like the gullwing doors. It had a stainless steel body. It was actually environmentally ahead of its time with how it was more is going to be more fuel efficient and less emissions and before those were requirements it was starting to add those in before other companies were even thinking about that sort of thing but the whole problem is they tried to push it out too fast and this was in 1981 and instead of setting up in an area that was notable for making cars DeLorean moved it to Ireland because he was going to get all these governmental tax breaks. The problem is to set it up so cheap, he was hiring a workforce that had never worked, let alone in a factory, but on cars before. So you can imagine the nightmares that were happening. So this led to massive delays, terrible performance issues, and it killed the car until it was, of course, featured in Back to the Future in 1985. By that point, it was a little too late and the company was dead in the water. I'm not sure if it's still up, but there's a four-part Netflix series all about uh, John DeLorean and the DeLorean. And it's, again, if you can find that or go back and listen to my the original podcast about it. This guy was like taking Elon Musk, Tony Stark, and Steve Jobs and blending them all together. It was just this you know, playboy persona of Tony Stark, the ingenuity of Elon Musk, and the the Steve Jobs like fixation on the tiniest of details. It was this guy is it's like he's a comic book character come to life. And, you know, he was successful in the car industry and he brought us like the GTO and famous cars like that. And he hobnob with celebrities and he was friends with Johnny Carson and Sammy Davis Jr. It's just crazy story about this man and um the specifications to get this car out and you know and then there's the stories of him involved with trafficking cocaine to um, put that into the company to get it up and running and that was sort of a hit job and um, he was set up and all this stuff and um, he got on and, and then just trying to market this thing and they didn't know exactly who it was going to be to but it was going to be a low-cost car and then of course all the delays led to the production problems and that, you know, affected the rollout and then the word of mouth got out and then, you know, the power windows didn't work and then the steering was bad. The ride was terrible and it was the original price was going to be um, the name for the original DeLorean was the DMC 12. It was only going to cost $12,000. All those production issues pushed up to $25,000 or around $63,000 today. And that was the big problem. People are like, why should I spend that much money on a company we've never heard of before that has not tested itself or proved itself has all these issues when I could go buy a Porsche for a lot less? Uh, so yeah, just the more you learn about the DeLorean and John DeLorean, it, it's just amazing story. So definitely check that episode out and check, look for that Netflix series if it's still up. 
So I wanted to finish with some of the stats of the podcast that hopefully you would find interesting, like I said, to see, you know, where everyone's from and stuff like that. So everyone knows about like Spotify rap for their end of year music, just to see what you've listened to the most and whatever. There's also the podcast wrapped i don't know if you've checked that out on spotify so you can get you know insights into your podcast listening like example um brit on patreon said this show came up as her most listened to podcast which is awesome but for podcasters themselves spotify gives us this private crazy year-end stat summary so think of like your stats that you got on your spotify rap they give us everything in these like personalized um, they're really well produced, put together. So much info. So just in case you're interested in some of the stuff from 2021 and like where everyone's listening from and things like that, I want to look at here are the top three podcasts as far as um, downloads and everything like that, which I had no idea about. So number three, the most, the third most listened to episode of the year was 10 Crazy Movie Fan Theories, which I think was a good episode. It covered a lot of stuff. The number two most listened to show was What Happened to Saturday Morning Cartoons. Again, well, these are all my favorite. Every episode is. But this one is amazing deep dive into the issue of deregulation and advertising to children and Ronald Reagan and a really good one if you want to go back and listen to. And the number one listened to show of the year by far, almost double what number two was was the 10 best TV theme songs of the 80s, which is super fun to make and put together. But I didn't think would be that, you know, interesting and consumed, but by far the most consumed podcast. The lowest ranked show, the story of the Tommy Omnibot, the lost episode, if you ever heard that. It was one I recorded like a year before, totally forgot about, found it and then released it. But according to this, it should have stayed lost. So... Looking at things like when a show is released, a new when a new show is released, the UK actually has the most listeners at first, followed by the US. And right now, the podcast has been heard in 71 different countries, which blows my mind. And I wanted to look at here are the top 10 countries for listening. So just to see, you know, where everyone's from. And also some of my connections to these countries too. The 10th um, country on the list that listens to most is Ireland. And like, I've traveled a lot wherever you're going and traveling, look for the Irish people. Cause those will be the most fun times you have nights out wherever the number nine country, the Philippines, which I would never have expected. Number eight was Germany, which last year I looked at wasn't in the top 10, but now there's more and more listeners from Germany. So thank you for being here. Number seven, Sweden. Again, I didn't know Sweden would get that high on the list. Like some of these other ones, you know, they've been in the top 25 and the top 30. More people from Sweden. Thank you for being here. Number six, New Zealand. And I've spent a lot of time in New Zealand. I have friends there. I lived in Auckland for a little while, traveled every inch of both islands, up and down, like, you know, probably the most amazing country in the world. Yeah, I mean, you, you could spend your life there and still not cover everything. Such an amazing place. So thank you, all the Kiwis. Number five, Australia. And another place, um, I lived in Sydney for a little while, and we have family in Australia. And I've, again, covered as much as I can all the way 
down Melbourne, Adelaide, all up the Gold Coast to Darwin, to all the little towns in between. Again, I saw a lot and felt like I barely scratched the surface in Australia. So I'm going to have to do some more. I was actually planning on doing an episode coming up on Paul Hogan and Crocodile Dundee and everything like that. So definitely have to get that in the mix. Number four on the list, and this blew my mind, Mexico. I had no idea there's that many listeners in Mexico. So if you're listening from there, thank you so much. I've been down a bunch of times. It's amazing um, country. So yeah, totally surprised to see that here. Number three, I mean, the top three, you can probably see where this is. So number three, the UK. And apologies if you've heard this too many times before, but I was born in Canada, but grew up partly between England and Canada. My mom is English. So I have dual citizenship between the two countries. So England is as much home as here. And then I lived in London for a few years in around 2007, eight, nine, around that. So um, yeah, I'm trying to do a few more. I did a Banana Man episode and have a few more UK-based ones coming up. Number two is Canada. So um, that's good. It wasn't always the biggest country for listeners. Um, all you canoes out there, it was always like lower down, like fourth or fifth, but now it's, you know, spread up and, and grown quite a bit more. And number one, of course, is the U.S. And I don't know if I've shared this as much, but I've worked in the States uh, coaching at a, a sporting camp, a kid's sporting camp. I did that for 13 years um, in, in Connecticut, not too far from New York. And that was usually, you know, four to five months out of the year for 13 years. So again, the U S is as, as much home too. And, and my best and closest friends are all American. So, you know, all these countries you feel a little connection to. So wherever you're listening from right now, thank you so much for being here and a little more info on, you know, who you all are. Through the stats, you know, some of the stuff I didn't realize. So 43% of you are aged 35 to 44. I'm not sure if you're in that group. The next highest listening group is age 45 to 59. And you make up nearly 40% of all listeners. And this one's funny. 3% are in the range of 60 to 150. And I'm not making that up. Spotify, for some reason, considers 150 the upper end of the age range. So if that's you, if you are the 150-year-old, thank you so much for listening to the show. And tell us your secrets because you are clearly a wizard or zombie of some sort. So let's finish it there. I hope you like this recap, look back at 2021 and all the 1980s related stuff and as well some more insights into the show. So if you, I'll just finish with, if you're in a position to support a show like this, you can check out patreon.com. I mentioned it a few times in the episode. So it's a place where for, you know, a few bucks a month, you get to support this show, but you get, you know, audio rewards at the same time. And at the different tiers, there's different rewards, and I've got the Everything 80s Movie Club over there, and stuff I share, and more interactions. You can check out more by just going to patreon.com slash 80s, so p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash 80s, just if you want to learn more and see what's up over there. Okay, that's it for me. Thank you for listening, and I will be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.